to Turn Bark Time, episode 13. That was cheesy, and I loved it. I'm the turn. I'm the bark. And we are going to be here a long time. So, uh, schooling, teaching, everything online, it's a good time. We sometimes ride here on Turn Back Time. That was double time, so that's not as much fun. Uh, anyway, fun topic today. I got to learn something new because, obviously, my area of history, I really prefer the modern stuff. That's what I really, like, get invested in. But uh, Mr. Barker has brought forth a family topic uh, that's actually really interesting. So I'm going to turn it over to him and let him talk about it. So today we're going to talk about the Siege of Vienna. Um, so if you didn't know, Vienna is in Austria. So we look at a map. Oop, nope, wrong one. My bad. Let's go to this map. Let's try that one. Problem with live TV. So, the Siege of Vienna Good is we're right not live. here. Huh? Good thing we're not live. Oh, whatever. We're not going to edit. Uh, <laughs> we're not. Editing takes time. So, Vienna is like right over here, just on the edge of what's Austria, which is in this purplish color. And this beautiful green area over here is what's called the Ottoman Empire, which today most people would recognize as... Turkey, um, named after the Turks that come out of the steppes. But that's a that's a story for another time when you're older. Um, another time. <laughs> yeah, another time. So this all originates from growing up. My parents lovingly bought us a set of children's encyclopedias from World Book. I want to say it was it had to be like 20 to 25 different volumes. And bless their hearts, we used like three or four of them. <laughs> Honest to God, the truth. So one of them was about building costumes. The other one was like neat arts and crafts. And then the third one was stories of freedom. As you can see depicted behind me is the cover. Um, hey, hold on. You smell that? It smells like freedom. <laughs> With a side of justice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, in this book is the Siege of Vienna. And it's, I was listening to a podcast today called, uh, let's give him a shout out. Our fake history, um, but it's actually he was talking about real history and talking about how people misinterpret history. But anyway, we're going to talk about the winged hussars of Poland, which is really kind of like the hero of the story, right? There's this castle full of defenders that are being besieged. They're outnumbered fifteen to one, um, and they're just about ready to give up. They're going to get beat by this massively immense army that they're according to some people, is going to treat them really terribly. Um, and then from out of nowhere, on the ridge above, right, there's like the little trumpet here. Ba-doo, ba-doo. And then here comes the largest cavalry charge in history down the hill and, you know, wipes out the invaders. Very Battle of Minas Tirith-esque from uh, Return of the King. If you don't watch Tolkien, get on that. You've got time. Uh, <laughs> it's good stuff good stuff so anyways one of the biggest problems with this battle as i've gotten older and i've read more books that's a thing um you start to realize that people start anytime that the ottomans fight europe people want to make it into a christianity versus islam is the battle it's like it's like a continuation of the crusades that's a very nice picture of a winged hussar behind mr turner there um and so, like, for instance, the Ottomans, when they invade, they take Constantinople in 1453, 
and it's kind of a change there too because like it's in this really neat period of history where firearms and gunpowder are really starting to become more available and more militarized but yet people are still using sharp pointy objects like swords and battle axes and the ottomans actually still use bows and arrows for the most part and they employ um they have the Tartars, which are like the, you know, kind of like if you imagine the Mongolian hordes, like horseback archers that, you know, run around and like harass and run away and harass and run away. So you're at this really odd kind of like juncture of new technology and tactics, like smashing into each other. Constantinople, it was almost like impregnable until the Ottomans showed up and then they hired people who made cannons in Europe to make this really big cannon and then they just smashed the walls down and invaded the city and took it over so that's kind of where the beginning of this as a political issue really starts is that the ottomans view themselves they took constantinople which was the capital of the eastern half of the roman empire so rome after things start to fall apart kind of breaks into two there's the what we today call the byzantine empire when we teach world history to seventh graders um and then like what we can consider the traditional roman empires in the west which falls apart and gets broken up by, you know, the Vandals and the Goths, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths, and, you know, just just not the Goths that we know today. Um, <laughs> they were more motivated. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, so when the Ottomans take Constantinople, they see themselves as rightfully inheriting the title of being like the Roman Empire by conquest. The problem is is that during this time in the area that will today be Germany is what's called the Holy Roman Empire, which according to my professor at Wazoo, wasn't holy, wasn't Roman, and wasn't yeah. an empire. It's like the worst the exact same sense. Yeah. <laughs> Must be in like a professor training that they go to. Yeah. Just remind them that the Holy Roman Empire isn't holy, not Roman. It wasn't really an empire. <laughs> so... And the, the king was actually, like, at one point, like, elected. Like, they would have the yeah. princes of all these little duchies and whatever would vote, and then they would pick the king. And what they pick, um, Leopold I, who's part of the Habsburg royalty, part of the Habsburg family, which is also in control of Spain at the time. Kind of an odd mix of countries to be Austria and Spain. You don't really see the connection there, but their bloodlines are shared. But Leopold holds the title of being a Holy Roman Emperor. And so that is seen as kind of an affront to the Ottoman Empire. Where they're like, no, we should be the Romans. We beat them. You didn't beat anybody. And plus, as the Ottoman Empire starts moving into Europe, the first major kingdom that they're going to run into that's kind of organized and defensible is going to be the, um, the Austrian Empire, or the Austrian Kingdom. And so they tried back in... In the 1500s, in 1529, there's a failed attempt to, to besiege Vienna. And then later in the 1500s, in 1571, there's a naval battle at Lepanto, which, according to Victor Davis Hansen, who wrote this book that I'm not a very big fan of, mm -hmm. um, a numerically inferior Spanish, Venetian, and Papal state fleet defeats the Ottoman armada and he has all these reasons why europe's better than the muslims but again because the papal states are in papal states are involved it becomes this issue of right christianity versus islam when when you really think about it, it's more about economics they're defending their right to 
own the trade empire in the Mediterranean and to protect all of the wealth that's going to start coming out of the New World yeah. into those countries, which is part of the reason they're like, oh, and the Ottomans never harried us again, um, according to Hansen. But it's like, yeah, well, the Ottomans weren't stealing all the gold out of America, you know, and enriching themselves and engorging, engorging themselves on all the stuff from with them. Um, I, I really think that we need to kind of check ourselves and make sure that we're depicting history accurately, because as everybody says, history is written by the victors. <laughs> you know, the victors. The victors write the write, get the spoils and write the write the books. Yeah. So, a sultan. Uh, come on. Clicking the mouse and the mouse isn't working. There we go. So these are the the leaders of the two empires at the time. So over here behind me in these like very bootylicious pants um, <laughs> is Leopold the first, a looker I know. And then um, his enemy in this conflict is going to be Mehmed uh, the fourth, Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And so interestingly enough, even though these are the two leaders of the country, neither of them are really active in the battle. So. You know, just like if when the U.S. goes to war the, outside of Washington, right? No president's ever led an army into battle. And so Mehmed is a very learned sultan. He's trying to – he wants to become famous. He has an uncle that's famous for being the sultan when they captured uh, Baghdad or Baghdad in American English. But mm -hmm. – uh, and so like people before have failed to capture Vienna. And so they, they see it as um, – in The crown jewels kind of deal. Yeah, like an Andrew we Andrew Wheatcroft says he, in his book, The Enemy at the Gate, refers to it as the golden apple. So, and you think about it, like it's it's one of the big cities on the Danube River, and the Danube flows, you know, up north through Europe into what would be, would that be the Baltic Sea or the North? Or no, the Baltic or the North Sea, I believe, you know. But anyway, so it flows north up through what today is Germany. Um, so it's a, it's a trade route. And again, it goes back to that. We want to claim to be the Romans. So if we can defeat Constantinople and defeat Vienna, which is where the Holy Roman Emperor is, we can really prove that we are the Romans because we've beaten both sides of the Roman Empire. And so the Ottomans set out to take Vienna. And at first... They're not quite the, – the Austrians aren't quite sure that's the goal. And then once they realize, they kind of have to go, oh, crap, we have to get ready. Because Vienna, this, the main wall around the city of Vienna was built in the 12th or 13th century with the money that they extorted from England for uh, Richard the Lionheart. And then they've made some additions later to kind of renovate those walls and update them with uh, the more spearheaded-shaped parapets or uh, bastions that we're more familiar with seeing with like uh, forts in the Caribbean. So if I'm going to flip to the map of that. You can, pretty small on here, but you can kind of see like these little like triangular points. And what that does is with the invention of cannons and muskets is it gives you those overlapping fields of fire where you can have, you can hit the enemy with two different kind of like sets of cannons instead of just one with a, with a flat wall. It was uh, it was the Black Sea, by the way. It was the Danube oh. flows into the Black. So, my bad. No, I was just saying we were questioning. Oh, so it flows the other way, does it? Yeah, but it does start in in Germany. 
um, near Switzerland's border too. So I'd say the Swiss Alps probably coming down. Um, what's interesting about this too is when we talk about this battle and we take a look at it, um, having to take a look and, and see how this happens multiple times in history where you have new technology, but people don't use it. And we'll see this like in the American Civil War, it'll be deadly. World War One, this will be atrocious um, in terms of like death tolls and things like that. Um, so when we take a look and, and say, okay, like they're coming for Vienna, remember it's a, a political battle, right? Like we want to be called Rome. And if we can defeat them, we get to be called Rome. So it's basically like, I don't know, would you say it's like fighting like heavyweight to get earn that heavyweight champion title kind of deal? Like somebody wants to hold it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's about it's about the title. They want to be respected. They wanna be they wanna be seen as another big power, just like the other Europeans are. And they want they want the respect that Rome had or the Byzantines had, you know, and they're they're not they're not getting it because they're viewed since they're a they're a Muslim empire, they're viewed as, you know the infidel which is generally a word that we turn around and use say that the muslims use to determine everybody else but yeah. uh, they're the other i mean you know there's always this sense of like we don't like each other but if we can find somebody else that's different from us yeah. we'll put aside our differences and go fight the other person and that's right. what happens to them in like early on with the battle of lepanto is right the holy league of spain at that time venice and then the papal states come together to push them back and that makes it again because the papal states are involved it really pulls on the those religion strings but in this battle one of the things that they begin to realize really early on the ottomans do is that warfare is changing if you have a castle up on a hill in medieval times that was a great thing because you were it was really hard to get at you but with the invention of cannons that just it's like you know i can sit here and throw cannonballs at your wall until your wall falls down so people start building actually fortifications that are closer to the ground. They want to get away from stone walls and fill things with dirt because it'll absorb the impact and it doesn't cause everything to crumble. But Vienna, again, you can't exactly just snap your fingers and renovate your city wall like you're on HGTV or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they have there's a series of earthenworks and of kind of like temporary uh, – parapets outside of the walls with a, with a palisade, which if you don't know what a palisade is, you just take and you put sharp sticks in the ground. And I mean like the size of trees, not just sticks. Yeah. And they did that. And when the Ottomans show up, they try and just to try and like human wave and overwhelm the walls and the defenses. And they find out pretty quickly that that's not going to work. They, they take severe losses and they go, how okay. Time to go back into the bag of tricks. What do we know how to do? And one of the one of the technologies or the strategies that tactics that the Ottomans had become very adept at was undermining walls. So you dig under the wall, you plant a big bomb underneath the wall, and then you, you know, like Wiley e. Coyote, light a fuse, it goes down the tunnel, and then it blows up the wall. And I mean, this is used also during World War One. I. I can't think of the battle off the top of my head. There's a great movie that i can't recall either um about new zealand miners that are put up there and they during trench warfare and they plant a huge series of mines that overturns the trench but it led to nothing because it's world war one and 
we didn't <laughs> kill some people died. But in this case, that's this is going to end up being a 60-day siege. And again, the the people inside that are protecting Vienna are led by a guy named uh, it's his name, his last name. They call him everybody calls him uh, Sternberg, but his whole like last name title he's Count Rudiger von Sternberg. So he's actually kind of like the, the commander in charge. The Duke of Lorraine is there, but he's actually across the river, not actually in Vienna, kind of watching from a distance. And then Leopold is even further away to give you kind of like the chain of command. But the Habsburg soldiers are very much more of the modern. They have grenadiers, so they actually have grenades. Right, not in the modern sense, but like essentially like the Wiley e. Coyote bombs. It's a metal bomb with a fuse. You have a slow wick, you blow on it, get it hot, light it, throw it, and then they would actually explode and kill with shrapnel. The Ottomans used grenades, but they were more they didn't have the hard iron casing on them as much they're more like clay, I think. And so they were they would do their damage with more of like percussion. Or like concussion, right? Just exploding, the actual like force of the explosion. But anyway, things look really dire. It gets so bad that, like, and the soldiers that were out in the field for the Habsburgs come back inside the walls, and they bring red, uh, bring red flux, and the city had just gotten over, we talked about this before, just gotten over a plague, like, three years earlier. So Vienna is not exactly, like, not much of a crown jewel at this moment, but it's more of a symbolic gesture. And so... Things are going really poorly. Eventually, the Ottomans take over kind of the earthen works, and they begin to undermine the walls, and they actually blow, at one point, a, a 30-foot section of wall falls in Vienna. And so it literally becomes, if you think about Battle of Helm's Deep from Two Towers, um, mm-hmm. where there's a hole in the wall, and you literally just, the two armies just smash people into the gap in the wall. It's not pretty. It's not, you know heroic it's just it's a big mass of humanity and so like the defenders are able to push the ottomans back at that point and then they put up like kind of a temporary wall but like vienna is at the tipping point of falling and what leopold has been doing is he's been trying to implore people to like send help and for the large part like they're the coffers of the austrian empire were pretty pretty dire he didn't have a ton of money he'd spend it all Trying to fight France, that actually worried about fighting France, worried about the you know, I'm trying to think was it the, the Bourbons like coming over from France and invading upon their the other side, which is kind of what left the door open for the Ottomans to come up and attack them in the in what is it 1683 here. But what saves his bacon is that the King of Poland, who depending on the source you read, in the actual like some of the more like I guess like traditional like Polish spelling is be Jan Sobieski, but when they anglicize it, they call him John Sobieski. It's in the same way that, like, everybody had a King Henry. Like, Henry's in English, or Henry, but in France, they're Henri, and in Germany, they're Heinrich. Yeah. So, what happens is, like, literally on the last day, the, the Ottomans, the general of the Ottoman army, Kara Mustafa, the Grand Vizier, because the Sultan's actually back home, like, in the capital, waiting because if they win, it's his fault. He gets to claim, or he gets to claim the win. And if they lose, the Grand Vizier, it's all his fault. So there's not really it's everything to lose for Kerem Mustafa. And he commits his troops to like the final assault on the city 
as the relief army shows up and just kind of like through a a perfect storm of bad things happening to the Ottoman army, the the Polish army has the winged hussars, which a hussar is really kind of an antiquated thing at the time. It's 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 a heavy knight on horseback with a lance. You know, the same things that we've seen since like the year 1000 almost. Now they do they they still carry like war like little like war hammers or like axes, swords in addition to that and maybe a small number of pistols, which is kind of a new addition because right gunpowder is becoming a thing. And these guys are all landed essentially landed knights and they all come with their own their own retinue and there's 3000 of them and i mean like i've never seen that many horses right and if you look at their armor this is honest to goodness they rode to battle this way they have the, the wings behind them are actually a wooden structure that's off the saddle and there are ostrich feathers on them and they clack and it makes it it's debated as what the purpose was some say it's to make the unit seemed larger because it makes more noise. Other people say they did it partially because the Ottomans had noisemakers that they would use, um, and that would often disrupt charging cavalry. And so by, I guess, desensitizing the horses to noise, the Polish horses would just come in and still would ignore the, yeah. the Ottoman noise, you know what I mean, and just ride through that. <coughs> but... They kind of come out of the forest, the the Kallenberg. Everything in like Austria just sounds so like epic, majestic. <laughs> they appeared from the Kallenberg, and then they spread out. And there's three thousand winged hussars in the front of this, and then behind them is another fifteen thousand like auxiliary cavalry units that are like light cavalry. They're not armored or whatnot, but it's pegged as the largest cavalry charge in the history of the world you know so it's it literally by definition it's pretty darn epic and the best thing for cavalry to do is to smash through disorganized infantry units right people on foot and the two things that really defeat cavalry if you've watched braveheart you know one of them um is (laughs) is essentially pikes spears right and the ottomans don't have any of those at least not organized and not ready. And the other thing is large volumes of musketeers. It's kind of a misnomer for most of us because we assume musketeers, we think musketeers, we think swords, even though yeah. the name of them means that they have a musket. Um, yeah. ir- irony, bad candy bar, or good candy bar, bad term. But yeah. uh, so Jan Sobieski shows up with his hussars and they lead this charge through the Ottomans and just push them off the field and literally the timing of it, it's the 60th day of the siege. And like Vienna is literally about right. It's 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 cinematic in that way. Well, there's the timeline yeah. happens to be perfect. Because there's nothing left at this point, right? So like when you're under siege, so the concept is I guess we should explain that kids watch. A siege is basically a surrounding of a city and not letting anything come in or out. And, and it's your attempt to to break the city's will. Um, so again, you're not letting food in, things like that. So people are eating like rats at this point, right? And they've already been sick and there's more sickness going through the city. 
Like the the people aren't like full muster, ready to like stand their ground and fight. And then lack of food doesn't make it any better. So so this is literally like that climactic moment. They like you said, cinematic moment where like you just know that it's it's an Alamo moment and everyone's about to go down in a rage of glory and but they're gonna go down nonetheless to have then like the trumpeter call and and these guys show up. And so they they push the Ottomans off the field. The Ottomans will actually retreat, regroup, and then they will actually the, the army advances and they fight again and push the Ottomans back even further. They save Vienna, you know, and that's where you know, they save Vienna. The Austrian Empire gets to stay alive. And yeah, Kara Mustafa will actually be put to death um, for his failures at Vienna and at the after the proceed the next battle as well. He the fact that he actually lost more than you know what they started with. And so the way he's put to death, fun fact for you, um, execution. Is that fun? Isn't huh? that fun to start with? Is it actually that fun of a fact? <laughs> well, everybody likes facts about like macabre things. Um, okay. If you were an upper class Ottoman and you displeased the Sultan, you were put to death by strangulation with a silk cord. Oh, really? Yeah. So two guys would come and they'd put it. And Qatar Mustafa is said to have lifted his beard to give, like, to essentially like show his neck. And then, like, to allow them to do it because he knew he'd screwed up. And, like, there was just no point. It, it, it almost, like, reminds you of, like, you know, like, the samurai code, like, people committing, like, subuku, yeah. where, like, you, yeah. like, you know, slice your stomach open and have your friend cut your head off. Um, yeah. Got my back. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, got my yeah. head. But Well, then yeah. They took, then they took the skin off the head, stuffed it full of straw, put it in a box, and sent it to the sultan so that he could, they could prove that he actually died. Wow. And that was his own people. But... One of the other things is that during this time period, they always say, they always point out that the terrible things, and I just kind of did it right there, that the, the Ottomans would do. But the Europeans really weren't any better. No. Right? It, it's just one of those things that we really have this kind of, this historical bias where we go, yeah, we do bad things, but we're still not as bad as those guys. And it, you just see it keep playing out throughout history over and over and over again. But you the thing I want to really like bring bring back is that this is a political and economic battle. It's not done as some, the, the main impetus behind it is not religion. No. You know, it's more of a political and like a, a vanity issue. No. And there's a lot of white supremacists that put stuff out that try and make this, the battle, the final battle, ha battle happened on September 12th. And a lot of them will fudge the date so that it's September 11th so that they can make parallels with what happened in 2001 which yeah. is really unfortunate because it really kind of simplifies something that's very complicated right well and, and like you said though like people when we look at this and people politicize different things and 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 make these battles bigger than they are um and then focus on the negative i mean like when you think about it when history's written right like people around you is like oh we don't write about like the bad stuff that's happening to us because if we we don't need to, right? Like everyone's here, everyone sees it, but like, holy crap, this is a new thing for them to do, to see, oh my God, like I need to write about this and, and document it. You know, you can talk about, it's the same thing. Like I make the comparison of like people talking about Native Americans taking scalps, right? Like you watch like Western movies or anything like that, especially the older ones, right? And the Native Americans are these horrific people who like grab your scalp and, and take your hair when you're alive and all that. 
Native Americans learned scalping from white people. <laughs> like they did white it so they people, could make money. Yeah. And that was their, like, a, it was like a currency kind of deal. Like, if you prove that you could do that, like, you could trade scalps. So it's one of those things, like, we have to understand that, that even though something gets maybe put on some group of, entire group of people, such as Islam being put on just, like, this Ottomans attack and things like that, or scalping on Native Americans, is you, you really have to go dig for the origin of that stuff. So... But this is really cool. I appreciate you teaching me about this. I know I didn't say much this time, but, but this is really interesting. I'm glad that you got to do this for your family and your brothers and stuff like that. So, so I highly recommend the book, uh, The Enemy at the Gate by Andrew Wheatcroft. Not Enemy at the Gate, the movie about... I was going to say, know, I saw the movie. It's got Jude Law in it. It's pretty good. It, it made it really hard to, to <laughs> Google. This book called Carnage and Culture, I highly recommend you don't read. Um... <laughs> It's all about European exceptionalism and why Europe's better because he says Europe's better. Uh, oversimplify stuff. Like using the term instead of saying like the Austrians, it's like, well, the Christians. And instead of saying the Ottomans, it becomes the Muslims. And it's like, no, no. you can't interchange those things. Like it's like saying the Protestants and the English. They're different. They're not the same thing. You can't interchange. You shouldn't inter. You can, because you can do what you want, because you're in your own mind, but you shouldn't use two titles interchangeably that aren't equitable, that don't mean the same thing. But with that being said, our our title music today was brought to you by the Swedish historic metal band Sabaton, who I emailed and got permission to use their song. So if I need to prove it to YouTube, I can I can send them the email. So big shout out to Sabaton. They have a great song called um, Wing to the Stars. It's like, when the wing to the arrive. Oh, it's great. Matt Kanata, you'd love it. I've sent it to you. I know you've listened. So <laughs> until next time. Yeah. Uh, next. So ne- our next one, we're going to talk. We're going to cover the election of 1800 next week. Um, going to be good. That'll be our last in-content one for, for Lesson 11 or Chapter 11. And then we actually have a really interesting talk about topic we talked about, we discussed at the end of the show, which will be our, our fr- Thursday or Friday release, which is going to be, um, we're going to talk a little bit about federalism and, and what's going on. Like, who has the responsibility to do certain things? And at what point do you have to listen to authority above you or can you go, go rogue? Um, and uh, this time period is the perfect time to talk about it. So, so again, Election of 1800 will, should drop, we're going to drop that Tuesday. And then uh, either Thursday or Friday, we will drop uh, our little bit of a federalism talk. So until next time, I'm Turn. I'm Bark. And we're going to be here a long time. You guys have a good night. Be safe. And be well. We miss you, Quincy Middle School.